Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 362nd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Jeff Brown. Jeff is the president of Stratos Private Wealth, an RIA based in San Diego, California, that oversees almost $1.5 billion in assets under management for just over 350 client households. What's unique about Jeff, though, is how his firm has developed associate advisor compensation plans and career tracks with well-defined level one, level two, and level three performance indicators of exactly what those advisors should be able to accomplish at each stage of their career progression towards becoming a lead advisor, which is allowing the firm to train and develop its own future senior advisors from the ground up. In this episode, we talk in depth about why Jeff decided on a growth strategy of having the firm generate prospects for its lead advisors and how it's allowed them to hire and develop advisors that better connect with and serve and retain clients instead. The unique performance review plan and scoring system that Jeff implemented to both highlight when his associate advisors were ready for a promotion and is used to calculate their appropriate bonuses and how the firm has leveraged client referrals, content creation, social media, and mergers and acquisitions to bring in clients for its advisors on the way to growing in nearly $1.5 billion of AUM, and is now increasing the firm's marketing budget and hiring a dedicated marketing professional to help further expand their reach. We also talk about how Jeff transitioned from the wirehouse world to start his own RIA, and how after feeling initially overwhelmed by everything from selecting technology, leasing office space, chose the supported independence model offered by Stratus Wealth Partners, the mental shift from focusing on income to enterprise value that led Jeff to sell a minority stake and then subsequently the majority of his firm to Stratos, and how becoming an employee of the firm that Jeff previously owned has actually been energizing for him as he works to expand the opportunity beyond his original firm and build out an entire unified private wealth platform under the Stratos umbrella. And be certain to listen to the end, where Jeff shares how a bad partnership breakup earlier in his career has changed the way he views and creates partnership and operating agreements today. Why Jeff wishes he had set bigger goals for himself earlier in his career and revels in how many different ways there are to build a successful advisory business, despite the naysayers who say you can't do it that way. And why Jeff recommends that young advisors try to decide early on in their careers whether they want to pursue an employee advisor path or build a firm of their own as they evaluate their own career risk and return preferences. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Jeff Brown. Welcome, Jeff Brown, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, thanks for having me. Looking forward uh, to it. I appreciate you joining us for the episode today, and I'm, I'm looking forward to, to getting to dig in and nerd out a little on advisor career paths and, and, and how you compensate advisors as they grow. This, to me, is a kind of a, a unique challenge of this I'll call the modern era of, of financial advisors, of advisory firms, you know, for most of the history of of the industry and the world of being a financial advisor, like compensation was pretty simple. At the end of the day, you went and got clients and you sold them stuff and you got a percentage of what you sold, otherwise known as a commission. And if you sold more, you got more. And if you didn't sell, you didn't get, and like, it was pretty simple and straightforward. <laughs> uh, there weren't really a lot of questions about, about how it worked. Just you controlled your destiny and, and, and did you thing and sold what you could sell. It, it's not until we started evolving into assets under management models where to me just the fundamental difference like 
you get paid by the client to serve them on an ongoing basis, even if you didn't sell them anything new, right? We just, we, we give good advice and service and, and retain them and get paid a recurring fee, whether that's subscription fees or, or assets or management fees. And suddenly it completely changed the way advisor compensation and career tracks work because it kind of gets funky to purely pay people a percentage of, of revenue when they didn't go get the revenue in a commit traditional commission model they're servicing the clients but we do need to pay them reasonably and it's actually a pretty big deal to manage client relationships and there's a lot of revenue at stake so you you don't just want to hand that off to someone who's not really trained in experience so then we got to train them and develop them and then we got to move their compensation up along the way and that just gets messy because we don't there weren't really any playbooks around that for much of the history of the advice world that was just all commission based and you didn't have to figure this stuff out back then so I know you you live in a a very sizable firm, upwards of a billion dollars under management that that's had to do some of this building and figuring out of career paths and compensation in in your firm. And so I'm just I'm excited to dig into that a little bit and what you guys have learned and managed to figure out in your world and hopefully share some ideas out to the broader advisor community as well. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to to do that, and I wish there was a playbook on this. It would have saved us a lot of time and energy. Um, and probably would have done it much better and a little less sloppy had that been the case. No kidding. No kidding. So I, so I guess as we dive in or, or before we get sort of directly to like compensation plans and career paths and such, I just paint us a picture of your advisory firm itself as it exists today. Like make sure we understand the context of the the business that we're talking about. Sure. So currently we're made up of 21 people including myself. We're located in San Diego, California, and all but one person work in the office there, or you know, mostly mostly in the office, I should say. One person is remote. We're serving a, just over 350 households with a little under a billion and a half dollars under management. Uh, we use the AUM to build the clients. We're not charging subscription models. We've tried that. We include the financial planning in that AUM fee. Um, and when I say financial planning, it, it is full-scale financial planning, uh, something that uh, yourself would would like, you know, in terms of the nerdiness that we take it to. Awesome. Our teams are set up with a lead advisor and either one or two associate advisors per per client, with an emphasis at growing those advisors from the ground up, as you talked about a little bit earlier, versus hiring experienced advisors from the outside. Um, and like most good firms, we try to maximize our use of technology to create as much efficiency as we can. And and so when you've got these advisor, I guess like pods, a lead advisor and one or two associate advisors, how, how many clients do, does that group serve? Yeah, typically it, it depends on the experience of the lead advisor and the complexity of the client. We don't have hard and fast numbers, but typically it's going to work out to be between 80 to 120 clients per team. Um, and some, you know, one team is as a lead advisor and he has two associates. He manages a, a lot more of the assets. They were actually a lot of those assets were the assets that I had managed. Um, I don't manage clients anymore. At least I have only a couple left, two of them. Thank goodness, because I can move into a different role. Um, so we really have four lead advisors, one lead advisor in training, five associate advisors, five client service folks, one trader, my COO, my chief of staff, who's kind of like 
is my right hand person. And for those that are familiar with like traction, yep. she is my integrator. Um, and then uh, director of first impressions. I like that better than saying a receptionist. And, uh, yep. and then we have another advisor that just does business development. In fact, he was my manager at the wirehouse. And after I left, he came and, and worked for us on the business development side. Interesting. And so I can see there's sort of this four coming on five lead advisors, five associates and five client service. So I'm Presuming then, like basically every one of these pods also has sort of a one-to-one -one client service person that's supporting them as well. Not quite though, actually. So okay. what we have is we have our, we, we segment our clients. We would call them triple A's or people might call them their A. They're top clients. The top clients have an assigned, um, we call it CST, client service, but client service person. We actually, a few years ago, as we were growing pretty quickly, my COO actually used Salesforce to design a ticketing system for things like wiring money, journal requests, right? Uh, alternative investments to be done. So she built a very complex um, way to route the service ticket to who was available. And this really made it easy for us to give people time off from the office, right? Um, yeah. It really made things efficient and easy for the advisor to track where is something in the process. So that worked out very well. But the top clients, because they are the top clients, they like dealing with one person. They have their own dedicated person with a, with a team to back them up. Interesting. Interesting. So, so I get from the client end, like they put in a request, I, I, I got to wire money, I've got a deposit going in, it goes in your ticketing system, and it goes to whoever's available. Uh, so from an individual advisor perspective, does that likewise mean I'm, I'm kind of supported by the, the pool of client service folks, I don't necessarily have my, air quotes, my person as an advisor either, because my not AAA clients could go to anybody in the client service team to have their needs solved. Correct. And, and some will gravitate towards, you know, a, a person. So if uh, I'll use Nick, he's an example of, of one of these folks. So Nick might just coincidentally have gotten Michael Kitsis multiple things from Michael. If Michael reaches out to Nick for something directly and bypasses the advisor, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that, that's fine. That, that works. We, we say that the client can contact anyone at the firm and it will get done for them. But generally speaking, our associate advisors really handle a lot of the communications with the clients and kind of the delegation. I think of the lead advisor, like the doctor and the associates, like the, you know, like the PA that comes in and the associates do, a, they, therefore they can get really involved and understand how the okay. operations work in the firm. Okay. So, so to the extent an advisor wants sort of a, like a lead advisor wants a a person who's running point on just the the planning quests that don't uh, the the service requests that don't necessarily need to escalate to the lead advisor in the first place it's the associate who tends to field that communication and those requests to clients and then might be routing it as an internal ticket to the client service team to you know someone please queue up this wire transfer that we need to do for the client so the the client gets some continuity to the associate advisor. The lead advisor has a uh, a continuity point to the associate as well. But then the client service team themselves are more flexible across all the advisors. Yeah, you're exactly correct. And with the only the only change to that is the associate will run point if they're kind of if they've moved up the career path to, you know, they're not you know month two in the business, right? Right, right. right. Yes, 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 yes. Brand, brand new, maybe they're not quite not yes. quite running lead yet. Yes, yes, correct. Okay. And and then I'm also just mindful relative to the numbers here. So you said close to 1.5 billion 
just over 350 households. So just like I napkin mathing that like typical client is $4 million. I'm sure there's some that are bigger and some legacy ones that are smaller. We've all got, we've all got some of that, but just does that feel right as I'm thinking about, you know, what is a typical clientele look like? That's the scope here. Yes, I am a data geek. So yeah, it's 3.8 million is actually the average accounts. Okay. So you're dead on. Okay. And so in that, uh, so in that frame, your advisor, like you essentially have a two advisor team, a lead and an associate with 80 to 120 clients per, per team, which I know re- relative to some advisory firms is a little bit, like a little bit smaller. Some just by the time they get to two te- two person teams, they're as high as 125 to 150 clients, but you're running almost $4 million client averages. Like uh, that team might be a, like could be a 350 to $400 million book. Yes, you're correct. And I think, I think it's come through, we are on the lower side. And as you pointed out earlier, um, you know, I think as we've kind of, you know, the journey of the industry as a whole, you've done it in your research where you said, Hey, we haven't actually had you know, the fees go down, what we've had to do is increase the services. services. And so as we've increased the services to things like Holistaplan, a new, a new software thing or income lab, like people have to learn those and execute those things. And therefore it takes more time and more people. So we're doing more for the client for the same fee. And what does fee model look like for you guys? Yeah. So the way that we have set it up and, and try to explain it to people is back in my very first, very first job, I, we, I was selling financial plans. So the plan was one fee and then the AUM, you know, that well, actually it, it all it was products at that point in time. So, but, and I found that if, we, if, if folks had to buy the plan, they weren't necessarily, they would skip the plan sometimes, right? So, so we decided a long time ago for better or worse to include the planning in the fee. Yep. But we, I mean, and I say planning, right? Not just a, a big thick plan. So because the planning is part of the fee, I want we wanted to be able to explain that to the clients because as as you know, that is the biggest value add that we do. So the way that we have defined how we do it is we charge one percent on the first million and a half that we manage, and then 50 basis points above that for all individual clients. Okay. The way that we explain it is we say, really, we charge 50 basis points on assets under management. And we charge $7,500 a year for financial planning, but it's baked into the fee. If you do it that way, that's how it maps out. If we run institutional money where there's no plan, we're just charging 50 basis points. But every client that is not an institution is required to have the plan. So that's how we have explained how we charge to clients. Interesting. That's It's effectively $7,500 for planning and 50 BIPs for investment management. And so by the time you get to $1.5 million, you've earned through the, the full planning fee and so that's why now we're at 50 bits marginally. Yes. So do you have a, is there a minimum as well? Like, do they have to be at 1.5 to work with the firm? Yeah, it's, it's a loose minimum, but that is what we target. We've said no to some clients that are, you know, lower than that and in distribution phase of their assets because it's only going to go down in value. But we'll take somebody maybe with, you know, five to 600,000 that's adding consistently or has a potential stock sale or a bit, you know, so it's flexible. It's not this the hard and fast, but that is really what we're looking for if possible. Okay. And so then I'm presuming with, if I just think about that with break points. So, you know, when the average client's close to $4 million, like some of that's at a 1%, some of that's at 50 basis points. So you probably end out at like 65 to 70 basis points of like blended fees. 
yes. at, mm-hmm. at the size of the clients. So 1.5 billion, you're like nine or $10 million of revenue in the practice. You're yeah, a little under that because we have some clients that have, you know, that were very large and we just kind yep. of, but yeah, your math is very good. Interesting. So then from a service team's perspective, as you're building out five teams across this base, like a, a, a team <laughs> maybe is a, a but team may be upwards of $2 million of revenue with a, a lead advisor and a support advisor associated with them. So like smaller, smaller by pure client headcount, but that's a really sizable revenue per advisor revenue per team. Yes. And I think, you know, and I'd also say that it's, that's not equal. Um, right. So yeah, but some you books, are correct. Some books are bigger. Some books are smaller as, yes, the, yes. And, as and, the firm and, evolves. Yeah. And I'd say most of the clients, you know, um, a lot of them came from me originally and all the referrals from that pool. And then we also did an M&A transaction where another smaller firm joined us. And and so for the most part, and, and the idea is, is, is in, in a perfect world where we want to be is the firm is generating all of the lead flow to the advisors. So, um, you know, it's no longer like it was when I started or even when a couple of my partners started where it's like, you got to hunt what you kill type of thing. So why that? approach of like I we want the firm to generate all the lead flow to the advisors. I think this Michael because when I when I started and we can talk about my story down the road but when I started what I was listening to and and it was a CDs back then in the car when I was going to work yeah. was not people like you educating us on financial planning. It was how do I sell? It's Brian Tracy. And because I needed to make my rent payment at that time. So yeah. it was, and, and as you're aware, like a lot of us, you know, I'm, I'm 53. So I'm actually on the slightly younger side of the generation of advisors that was salespeople at large firms selling stuff. Yeah. And we, we evolved into advisors. And I believe that if you're trying to hire people that are going, to, their chief goal is going to bring in revenue to the firm. It's a different type of person than the type of person that can really help and connect with clients. Um, we want that, I want that high EQ. Obviously we want a good IQ as well. And we want that, you know, that, that, that high EQ, emotional intelligence, the ability, someone that really wants to help. And I think that for the, and, I, and, I've, and, I, and I'm friends with people and would love them to work for me that are great salespeople, but they, they're just interested about, about growing, you know, revenue. And it's, I, I feel like there's still that conflict out there. So I, I believe by the way that we're doing it, we attract a different type of person to the firm. So Building a firm where the business development is not on the shoulders of the advisors lets you get a particular kind of EQ-oriented, service-mind-oriented advisor who's maybe not as hungry to go out there and just build revenue at all costs with you know both the benefits and sacrifices that that entails. You don't need them to do that when you separate the sort of the service function from the sales function. Yes, and and you know we reward them for bringing in new money. There's a bonus plan attached to that we could talk about, but, but in general, it is not the requirement of, of them. And we are not, that is not when they come in, you know, we, we're talking more about, we want you to, we want you to really be that guide for a client. We want you to be more of a life coach than a salesperson. And um, like I said, I think it's a different type of person. Some people can do both. Like I felt like I could do both, but, but some people, you know, are not, are wired one way or the other. And I would rather lean on the people that, that have that really good client connection that really want to help people. Well, the people who can do both tend to find ways to move up successfully in organizations. Anyways, they go build their own firms or they often find ways to become partners or or create other opportunities for themselves and the firms that they're in. 
Exactly. That's exactly the case. And that's kind of the, you know, a couple of the partners, that's, you know, that's what they did. And that's, and they're still good at raising money just because they grew up in that environment to do so. So, so then help us understand where the business does come from at, at 1.5 billion working with pretty affluent clients like that. That's hard. Those are hard clients for almost anyone to get in any circumstances, even when they have a whole bunch of advisors who are out there doing business development. You don't have a whole bunch of advisors out there doing business development because their focus is servicing 350 clients with one and a half billion. So where does the where do the clients come from? Where does the growth actually come from? Yeah, so we were very intentional about you know how we're trying to to grow the firm through referrals. Um, we're not actually asking for referrals the, the traditional way. You get paid in two ways, the, the way we all probably learned how to do it in day one. Oh, so familiar script, yes. <laughs> yeah, so we, we do not do that. We happen to have in our backyard um, a, a sea of companies, um, like Qualcomm, for example, is in our backyard, a lot of biotechs. And what you find at those places is a lot of very wealthy people um, that do it on their own. Um, they're using E-Trade. They have stock options and such. And so what we do is we are just consistently putting out materials that speak to them. In addition, you know, we've been doing this for a long time and we're known. So these, the folks that work at those firms are generally scientists or engineers. And what do they, what do those folks have in common? Well, they have a few things in common. One is they're, they're fee conscious typically. Um, Number two, they tend to be, you know, somewhat performance driven um, and number three, they're detail-oriented, and they want to understand the value that they're getting. Most of them are very adverse to paying you know, 1% on, on AUM, just because it's a big number. I feel like the way that we've priced it out, we encourage larger account sizes. They're, getting a, they're paying a, you know, only 50 basis points on every dollar above $1.5 million, which is fairly competitive, I think. Yeah. And, and I think that we go so deep with these individuals, and we help them realize so much, word gets out. So we have been able, like, while we have money that comes through various marketing channels, and why we are, you know, closing in on, you know, a custodial referral program and you know, webinars online and, and those types of things. Still, the bulk of what we get comes from COI referrals as well as client referrals. And knock on wood, so far that has kept kept us growing over the years. Um, right now, we're actually, you know, we hired a marketing person. Uh, we, you know, which is something I, I think. We, we should have done a lot sooner. We kind of outsourced it. We've messed around with a bunch of other things. And we're now driving some intention on the whole social media webinar type of marketing and trying to become good at that. And we hope that'll also yield results. And we also are at the final stages of, of a custodial referral program, which is why we have the lead advisor in training to potentially take that on. That's starting hopefully uh, end of this year. So we'll see, you know, don't count it until the money arrives type of thing. But yeah. I think the, the, the goal long-term is to have systematic um, uh, institutionalized lead flow to the firm so that the advisors can just advise people. So, all right. So I want to, I want to understand the, a few of these a little more deeply. Um, you said in, in terms of trying to attract the, the scientists and engineers, right? The, the Qualcomm's and biotechs and folks that are, are in your area already, you had said you're, you're, you're consistently putting out materials that speak to them. So what, what, what is that? mean like what are you putting out in practice yeah so we put out we, we um we put out content that talks about things like you know um mega backdoor you know mega roth conversions where you can use your after-tax money that's a big thing at, at, at qualcomm for example a big opportunity that they have we talk about qualcomm specific uh benefit selections um we would talk we, we do because these folks are engineers because they do care about investments and i know we understand that investments 
is a bit of a commodity. Um, however, we do it pretty well inside and we run our own, you know, we put out webinars and articles and everything associated around that. We tend to be a little geeky on that stuff. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's a little more complicated than the average, you know, if you miss the best 10 days in the market type of stuff. So um, that appeals to this group of people. It's a little different than what they normally see. So we do that on social. I, I'm very active on, on LinkedIn. Um, so you could, anyone could go to my LinkedIn page and see like, and we do videos. So that tends to, that tends to back up. And so what happens is that someone, uh, this just happened this last week. Um, we, we have got a new client that was um, actually uh, someone that I personally knew and, and, but he had seen our stuff online. And then he approached me one day and he just said, Hey, I, I've seen your stuff. I'd like to sit down and talk to you. I, I, you guys seem like you're pretty smart on all this stuff and I haven't wanted to pay someone before, but I'm, I'm interested now in understanding how it all works. So that's what happens. And it happens enough that we still have consistent, pretty good organic growth internally. So, so you're, you're creating content with things like videos, talking about specific strategies like mega backdoor Roth or even mega backdoor Roth at Qualcomm yes. and, and distributing, sharing it out on LinkedIn. Yes. And, and even I, I'll go a step further that kind of talks a little bit about the career path. If we can, you know, we have our up and coming lead advisor, potentially one thing that kind of gained credibility for him is that, you know, he wrote the article, he crafted it, he put it out there, we shared it. And now we get different faces of, of the firm out there as well. So I, I think that that has been, and that's an area now that we have a marketing person internally, we were haphazardly doing that before, I would say. Uh, we're really putting some intention around it today. Um, and that's really kind of our OKR for, for Q1 of next year is to really, you know, where we actually start investing money and promoting these things out there, which we have not done in the past. And do you have a sense as to what that would look like? Like, what, what would you do in investing money to promote? Yeah. So, so one of the things that we're, we're building is a, is a webinar. And, and so a webinar around, um, like just, let's just use an example here, um, re retirement distribution plan, right? So using a specific type of software, using dynamic dynamic um, withdrawals, which is using a, a like income lab, for example, as an, as an example of a software program that is so, somewhat unique that's out there that people haven't seen. We're going to do a webinar. We're going to record the webinar and broadcast the webinar as if it is live. We're not going to say that it's live or recorded. We're just going to put the webinar out there. Um, we're going to we're going to pay we're going to pay in order to to promote this. And while the webinar is playing, I'm going to have one of my associate advisors answering questions. And and during the, there's periods on that webinar where they're going to be saying, oh yeah, if you have a question, you know, type it in the chat. Well, in that chat will be someone answering questions, and then will be there'll be several opportunities with a link to book a 15 minute call for any specific question that they have. Um, this is something that a colleague of mine has been doing very successfully. Um, so some of the best ideas, of course, are ones that we get from other advisors. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so he, I already have the playbook of something to do to, to to use with that. Something we've wanted to do but have yet to you know have the capacity without a full dedicated marketing team to, to handle it for us. And and paying to promote the webinar is like paying for social media ads? Or yeah, like social, so yeah, social media. They do it social media. It's, it's permitted on, on social media. You also kind of link it through your website too. So calls to action on your website, calls to action in the things that we send out. So we have a whole list of prospects that are on our you know, on our HubSpot distribution. So all of that would be ways to, to get people to engage. And I wish I could tell you now that it's extremely successful and it's raised yeah. X amount of money, but this is still in the infancy, infancy stage right. of doing it. But, but it's an example of, I think once you have a, a dedicated marketing person, you can really kind of, 
dive into things if you're willing to spend the money. And that's an area where we're definitely willing to spend the money. I think most advisory firms spend like 2% on marketing. Yep. So we're, we're looking to drive that number you know, up significantly from that figure. Do, do you have a target in your head of like, we want to spend X percent of our revenue on marketing? I would like to, to triple the, the, so get from two to six, like, which seems like not a big number, but it's, you know, it's a big number on that, on that, on that big number above. Yeah. And, and yeah, so, so it, it is a big number, um, but it's not, we're not going to do it overnight, right? We have to see success. The idea is, you know, you start, in my opinion, with everything, you get the minimum viable product out there um, to just get feedback on it because we try to make it perfect. It's never going to happen. So we get the minimum viable. We start investing money around it, see what works, see what doesn't, and then continuously like reiterate on it until we have something where you put in a dollar and you get out two or three or four or five, and then you consistently can just push money into it. We did a variety of different types of webinars live. And uh, one thing we didn't do well, we got a lot of, we got a fair amount of lead flow from it, but they weren't that qualified. And I think um, with with some of the tools out there that are available now, you are going to, first off, we're going to let people know exactly who we work with, right? The minimum is a million and a half dollars of investable assets of money you can transfer, however you want to be as specific as possible right. to try to weed out. Because what we were having is people booking calls and it, it wasn't worthwhile for us. So we took a pause on that and kind of went back to the drawing board and coming back again. And And where did you find a marketing person who can drive and lead all of this? Did you find someone from within the industry? Or are you finding someone who just has a marketing background and having them learn about the industry? Yeah, I, I um, so so the good news is, Michael, is that it's is that I don't hire anybody personally anymore. So I have a, I have a great chief of staff that, yeah. that does this for me, um, and and a team at uh, at at, at Stratos Wealth Partners that that's the RA that we roll up into um, that has HR. And so what we what we did is we did a search. We were very specific about what we were looking for. We wanted someone that could lead. Um, we, we weren't ready for like a CMO yet, right? We, we don't we don't want, we wanted to try it out. Uh, and, and more than anything else, we just want somebody that got us, that could take a look at us, take a look at our brand, and how can how do you identify with it? Where can we improve it? Can you use HubSpot, which is our tool? Can you understand Salesforce? Um, a variety of things. And we found somebody that wasn't in our industry, so which is you know which you would think might be challenging from the content creation place, but we got extremely lucky that she was a quick learner. And she has taken, I mean, in, in the short amount of time that she's been with, not even a year yet, she has really made a big difference um, in terms of rebranding us, um, putting out good content, expanding our, our socials um, on, on whether the company or my own. Um, it's, been, it's been remarkable to see, like, once you can have a dedicated person that gets you. And I think that now we've we had to rework, rework all the stuff we were doing poorly before. So that was, that was 2023. And uh, 2024 is like, let's go on the offense now. And what can we do now that we've rebuilt the website and all of that? What can we do now to really start investing money in the firm? And she, you know, to be honest, like she is part of the marketing budget expansion, right? That was that was right. nobody before. And you you said you're also trying to go deeper into the custodial referral programs. Mm -hmm. So so how does that work for folks who aren't aren't familiar with the actual? system and mechanics. I mean, I think most people have heard like there's a thing where the custodian sends you referrals, but for, for those who don't know any more of it than that, like how, what is it and how does it actually work? Yeah. So the custodian referral program, first off, it, it is, it is not an, an easy thing to get into. This is four years of work on this. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, I, I roll up into Stratos Wealth Partners. Um, Stratos Wealth Partners has a variety. They have different firms. Like they would have Kitsis Wealth Management. I was Brown Wealth Management. We could talk, like I said, about the history in a bit. But um, 
So they, because of their size, they're, they're a very large firm, uh, Barron's ranked and such, they have the assets with the custodians. Um, and, what, and what my team had was the process, right? We had the thing. So we've combined, we combined their, you know, their, their size with what we did. And we started, you know, we kind of went down the path and we've been working with them for a significant period of time. And we're, we're told now, you know, that it launches at the end of this year. The way it works is that the, um, the, the offices for this custodians, like you go in as a Fidelity, for example, you go in, um, you could, Michael could be a client of Fidelity and they can manage money for you. They're, they have financial planners there. Um, but those financial planners, they, they, they manage a lot of clients, right? A lot of them. And they can only operate in a very small sandbox in some cases. So when clients want something more, I've sold my business. I have a concentrated stock strategy. I have, I have, I have a massive amount of money in Qualcomm. I just got a divorce. I have a, an ailing parent. I have some unique situation. I have, you know, some sort of big thing on the planning side, or I don't necessarily, I want something different than my Fidelity mutual funds. They are then, they don't want to see the client leave the custodian. They want to keep the client at the custodian. So they're going to refer it to a list of, 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 of RAs. Um, you know, I think that list I'm guessing I, I last, I heard it was about, you know, 70 to 80 companies in, in the, in the one channel. Um, so they have a list and, and they kind of take a look at, Hey, what's the client want? Who on this list is good at that? You know, not everyone does financial planning. So that, that weeds out people, you know, does it have to be local or not? That weeds out people as well, right? Do they want alternative investments that could weed out further people? So, so when they do that, they, they typically will send the client, you know, three names, um, they can do it in a variety of different ways, but typically it's three names and they might, you know, indicate their favorite there too. And then the, then the client reaches out or the Fidelity or Schwab, Schwab rep will, you know, contact the, 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 the advisor directly. What, what's, it sounds great. So there's, you know, a couple caveats here. One is the client is still the client of the custodian. You're in partnership with it. So you are actually paying them a revenue share or agree, uh, arrangement with them. So it could be like 25 basis points, for example. I think that's what it, what it is for when you start out with these firms, uh, 25. So it's, and that's in perpetuity and that's including grabbing more wallet share for that existing client, which is by the way, something good that the custodian wants. So the custodian is still making probably the same, if not more money on the okay. client. Number. So it's a win for them. It's a win for the clients. And although the cost of acquisition here, you know, is, is a perpetuity for the team. If you run it in an efficient manner, um, and you have technology and processes and such, you can operate at a lower margin for, for that client. And I, I think, um, so it's, it's just one type of, you know, we're not abandoning everything for this, but it's another revenue source, another way to institutionalize lead generation to the firm. Uh, so, so I'm wondering though, when, when, when the cost gets as high as, 25 bips in perpetuity and your fee schedule breakpoints down to 50 basis points at everything above one and a half million just is that is that problematic is that a concern i mean just you're at you know you're at 50 percent of marginal revenue at at that point that just that's a it's a big chunk relative to what you also just need to to run the business so does that is that a concern does that worry you or it's still profitable at that level. That it's still following. profitable because, because of the, of the, when we can talk a little bit about how the advisors get paid and such, it, you just have to do the math on it, Michael. You have to say, okay, this is, first off, you have to understand what, what types of referrals are typically coming in. And the, it's, unfortunately, it's not a lot of $10 million referrals, right? They're, they're probably referrals in that, in that one to three, you know, you know, one and a half to, to, to $3 million space. 
So you're still getting the 1% on the, on the bulk of that account size as well. The secondly, it, it, you're also paying the way we pay the advisors is, is a, a portion of their pay is a salary and portion we can get into it is, is, a, is a percentage of revenue. So they're going to have to manage more. So how do they manage more? Well, we're going to set up that team that manages these clients in a different way than we currently have our existing teams. We're going to have one primary point of contact and perhaps multiple service advisors under that that are more of a salary base that can handle a large amount of this. So we've, we've done the math behind the scenes to make sure it all works. And remember, this is just one way. Um, what that will allow us to do is this will allow us to get more money to invest in the firm. And so that's it's, if this was the primary thing that we were going to do, the only thing we were doing, I know some firms, that's they rely on it, we would change the fee schedule. Uh, but that isn't on the plan today. Interesting. So your structure to handle aside from, you know, just if the reality is these are like one to $3 million clients, you have a bigger chunk at, at 1% and not, not as much at, at the 50 basis point threshold is restructuring the advisory team support, in essence, to be able to handle more clients per advisor at uh, which which makes the math still just work for the firm when you're getting less less revenue per client net of the referral fee. Correct, correct. And if it turns out that it is cost, if our math was wrong, the fee schedule is, is not ingrained in stone either. We could right. maybe add another breakpoint in there or what have you. But that's been the, the plan is to keep it the same for now. And do you track overall or just like, where the growth is coming from by various sources. I mean, between, well, obviously the, you don't have the custodial flow yet because that's that's a new program getting going, but you said that there's client referrals and there's some of the content and social media marketing you're doing and there's some flow that you're getting from COIs. Uh, like, how does the growth break down at this point? Is it still mostly referrals and the others are just starting to fill in or are you finding you're less reliant on referrals as the other programs ramp up? No, it's still mostly referrals because of the sheer size of the referrals. That's tend to be where we get our largest clients. You know, so as an example, I had a client that gave, you know, I knew this person, right? I, I surf and I, I've run into him, um, you know, on the, on the island that I go surf at a couple of times. Uh, we didn't talk business too much. Um, but one of my other clients is there. And so he, gave, he told, hey, you should check, you should go, you know, talk to Jeff about this because they're friends. And, you know, so he, you know, sees me on social and sees some of our stuff and that he comes and talks to me and says, Hey, I've seen your thing. So it's, it's hard to really, did that come from social? That came from my friend actually. So when, when most of the growth is driving from referrals and is is taking you so far to 1.5, I I guess I'm just, I'm just trying to visualize like why the, why the push with all the other marketing things that you're you're getting going here if client referrals is driving as much growth as it is already? I, I think because, um, honestly, because it's not predictable um, necessarily. And we're of the size now where we have scale, where we have the money to invest in these other things that we may not have had before. And so we can try and fail on these, on these things. And and it's not going to be detrimental to the firm or to the bandwidth of the firm at the time. So you go back several years, you know, we were trying to do some of this stuff while with a day job and all, you know, it was just, it it was too much. So I am, you know, at one and a half billion, I'm, I'm a quarter of the size that I want to be. So I want to be trying everything failing in probably a lot of them, but definitely, you know, succeeding in others. Interesting. Interesting. So, so now that we understand the, the, the growth dynamics and where the flow is coming from, take us back now to 
the advisor world. We, we've kind of you mentioned a few times around advisor compensation being structured a little bit differently because this isn't a sales and eat what you kill environment. We we spoke at the beginning about about career tracks as well. So help us understand more now how you how you're building compensation and career tracks around this structure where the firm drives the growth and the advisors need to service it. Yeah, sure. So, um, so kind of maybe explain the, the failing part first. Um, <laughs> the so that's usually where, that's usually where the lessons be, begin. <laughs> yes. Where did we fail? So, um, so we left a wirehouse in 2015 and, um, there was just five of us at the time. We had about 400 million under, under advisory management and, uh, you know, thinking in the realm of, you know, income and profitability and, oh, we're independent now and we're keeping more of the pie type of thing and everyone's happy and we're, you know, growing well and, you know, you know, for a number of years, like, I think it got to like, I think it was, it was 20, it was around 2019, but you, you know, when we were, when we kind of hit this, I would call it the capacity wall, just so happens that, you know, we're talking about growth. This is pre-COVID. So we're sitting down doing business planning. How are we going to do this? Talking about some of these ideas I'm talking to you about now. Um, and So what, the, what was the size of the firm when you're feeling this capacity wall? Like where were you by 2019? We were probably like, I would say probably seven, eight hundred million under management. Right? Okay. So we've done well since the 400 and change. We've got some market growth in there, hopefully. And but. Yeah, we hadn't grown the team by that much. We'd added a couple of client service folks and we had tried our hat with like bringing in a different advisor here and there, experienced advisors. We happened to have this one gentleman that started off as a intern with us, math major, very, very bright guy. And we didn't have an intern program at the time. We just kind of had him do everything, right? We hit the capacity wall and we, we had this idea like, okay, what are we going to do? Because we don't want to hire an, an experienced advisor. We haven't had good luck with that yet. How do we elevate this junior advisor, you know, to, to, to a lead advisor. How do we do that? And he got to be the guinea pig. Um, so lucky him. We kind of started and, and set it up. Hey, you're going to be in the meetings. We started setting up our pairs, our pods, if the, as you call them, at that point in time. So he was supporting kind of the, the advisor that had the most clients. And it turns out my partner, Pat, you know, did this for me at one point. He started off sitting in the meeting, he kind of started taking over the planning. And I talked about the investments. You know, he would talk more. I would talk less. So we tried this with, with Colin and Colin was very good at it. And we, we said, oh, wow, this is actually kind of working. And he might be able to take clients on at some point here pretty soon. So let's hire more of these people. And when we hired more of the people, what do people ask when they come in for an interview? What's the career path? <laughs> so how do I become a lead advisor? Well, Colin kind of is on the track, but there was no real, real defined way to do it. So what I did is I, I you know, the, the CFP, um, actually has a career path out there. They've actually built it, right? We're using their own language. So what I did is I took that to the folks I use at ClientWise for my coaching, took that here and we sat down and we customized it to say, hey, well, how could this look in a perfect world? So we, we did version one, which just said, hey, there's going to be, you know, you go from an associate advisor to a lead advisor. Well, that was the beginning of the career path. Well, that wasn't enough, right? We needed different levels of an associate advisor. So we then broke it apart saying, hey, here's what you start to do different things. And then it became, well, how do we promote people within this? Like, how do we, how does it work? So we really broke it down by specific tasks that they need to do at each level from an associate advisor level one to an associate advisor level three, right? You're kind of top associate advisor before a lead advisor. So let me give you an example is that at the, 
at the beginning, associate advisor level one, he's going to, or he or she is going to, you know, be able to draft and update a financial plan with complete oversight from the lead advisor. Level two, you can draft and update the plans with limited oversight. And level three, you don't, the lead advisor does not look at it. The same thing works with at the beginning. At the beginning, you're, you're writing down client questions and you're researching what the answers might be, even though the lead advisor is going to give those answers. In step two, you can answer basic questions. And in level three, you're actually presenting those answers. So we, had, we have it broken down from the financial planning component, financial markets component, servicing clients, and then how to service the team and mentor others. And we also have it broken down by the number of years that, that's probably required, and we have compensation in there. So this is how the career path looks today. What we then do is, so how do you track it? Like, how do we let people know? So in the, in our, we have a, a software tool, it's called 15.5. And 15.5, you can do a lot of things in it. You can, we do our performance reviews in there. We do our OKRs in there. And we, we do what's called PDPs, which is a professional development plan. So we do these three things in there. And so the performance review, like for associate advisor level one, we're going to grade them on a scale of one to five. You know, three is you're doing your job. You know, four is you're doing it great. And five is you're superb. And one or two is you're not doing it well, right? So if you're getting to this point where you're getting fours and fives on everything, you're eligible for a promotion. And then when you're eligible for promotion, these things you're getting graded on now change to the next thing. And you're going to probably start off on, you know, probably not doing your job on those. And the good news is when you get a promotion, you get a higher base pay. Well, we also do these performance reviews three times a year. And each time we do it, we take the average score and that becomes the percent of their base pay that they receive as a bonus. So if I wasn't, if it's if, if using as an example here, if, if, for example, the average score is a three, which means you're doing your job, you're getting a 3% bonus three times a year, roughly a 10% bonus per year. If you are absolutely crushing it, you're getting fives, so you're getting 15% a year. But remember, when you get the uptick, we might not be doing as well on the scoring because you just got a promotion, but your base is going to move up quite a bit. So. so you've set all these standards at like associate one, associate two, associate three. They're getting scored on each of those domains three times a year, getting their one to five scores. After they get scored, you also do three times a year bonuses and the bonus, their average score on the bonus is their bonus percent. So if you mm -hmm. average three and a half, you're getting a three and a half percent bonus as you go through the year when you're mostly getting fours and fives, or do you have to literally get like all fours and fives to move up? You need to be really good at dealing with the things that matter. Um, right. You know, if you're not so great on the financial markets piece, that, that we can we can educate you a little bit more on that, right? You can still move up and still get help on that as you move up. And so then, as I as I move up, I get promotion <laughs> in title. I get promotion in pay. I might not get great scores now because now I'm being graded on harder things that I won't do as well. But if my bonus goes from you know ten percent a year down to five percent a year, but I'm getting a much higher base pay, I'm likely still netting higher. So I, I'm making forward income progression. And, um, and and probably most importantly, Michael, you're one step closer to that lead advisor. Um, you know because we, we do bring people in from the ground up, so they tend to be they tend to be younger um, in, in age and younger in experience. So that that's what I you know we have to keep sometimes reminding them is like this is what you're shooting for. 
you're shooting to become a lead advisor. Now, we haven't had anyone that says, hey, I want to stay an associate advisor yet. I'm not saying there's a problem with that, but, but generally speaking, everyone that we hire, they're hiring to become a lead advisor. The good news with how we're doing it is we're showing them, we're quantifying exactly what they need to be doing in order to get there. So who, who does the grading? The, the manager. So the manager for each associate advisor is the lead advisor that they're paired with. Okay. So the lead advisor is training the associate. The, I mean, we, we kind of do a bunch of training. So it's not just one person training their person, but that's the person that is most engaged with the, you know, the, they can see the work that they're doing because they're doing the work right. for that lead advisor. Sometimes, they, you know, the, an associate might help two advisors a little, you know, have a little, there's a little bit of, you know, kind of crossover, but not a lot. Sure. We try to keep it. Yeah. So, so that person is doing the grading. And then before there's a promotion, we, we talk about it internally. We just make sure, hey, is it, you know, this is what you're seeing. Is everyone else seeing this as well? So then what are the salary comp levels that go with this? Can I ask? Like, what's yeah. the... Course. What's yeah. the base salary you get at like associate one, associate two, associate three? Yeah. So it's a range and you know it, it can be different depending upon exactly the experience that they have coming in the, the, the gate. And I and keep in mind I'm I live in Southern California. So oh. uh, the last time the last time that we updated this is uh, I believe it was last year. So I, I, that's what I think the, the date on this says. So maybe okay. it's a little bit different today. It might be the same. So it starts as low as like an intern makes twenty dollars an hour. The associate advisor level one, sixty-five dollars to $70,000 base, plus the performance uh, bonus. And also, I didn't mention it, but we also have what's called the net new money bonus. So, um, well, I'll, I'll answer your question, I'll, then I'll explain what that is. Okay. So, uh, then associate two is seventy-five dollars to $90,000 base, and associate three is ninety dollars to $120,000 base. Okay. Okay. And, and then you said, so there's two bonuses on top of this. One is the, uh, one is the performance bonus that you talked about. So, you know, take your average scores. That's your, that's your bonus rate. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you said there's a, a net new money bonus. So I'm assuming that's like a business development bonus. Yes, you're, you're correct. So while it's not necessarily required as part of the job description to raise a certain amount of money before you can move up, um, you, there's a bonus for it. So there's, we, we pay our net new money bonus. I'll keep it simple is that they, it gets, uh, we take the fees, we take 40% of the, the, the estimated first year fee based on the assets that are there. Okay. Then we will pay out that fee split between mostly between whoever sourced it and what team brought in the clients. And, and generally, you know, a lot of times it's the same people, right? It's right. the same, but, but sometimes for example, you could have Pat on my team, who's pretty well at full capacity, get a referral for a $2 million client. It's a little on the low side for him. He manages the larger clients. So he'll get the, he'll get the referral. That would count for him because if a referral comes from one of his clients or one of his COIs, he is the what we call the lead generator. And then he passes that over to, to Robert. And then Robert then and, and, and Robert and his associate advisor then bring in that new business. And that, that money is split between those two. And there's some, you know, there's some discretion upon how that how that split can be done. If the associate does a lot of work in it, getting, you know, getting the doing the planning and everything, the lead doesn't have to do much. You know, they might they might give them a little bit more. Um, I forget the exact breakdown between the lead and associate, but I think it's pretty close to like 60-40, if you will. Okay. And uh, and it's just 40% of the estimated first year fee. Like yes. this isn't an ongoing trail rev share kind of thing. This is like a one-time yep. bonus for the business development. 
Correct. And, and, the, and, the, and the lead advisors that are not, you know, we could talk a little bit about their compensation as well, but then the lead advisors that are not partners of the firm, um, then they'll get a percentage of, of that fee, uh, you, know, you know, indefinitely, just because they're managing the client relationship or whoever, whoever is managing that client relationship uh, will get a percentage of the fee moving forward. Okay. So, so I do want to understand lead advisor um, uh, comp in a moment and, and, mm-hmm. and how that works within your structure. But on the associates, I want to come back for a moment. So they've got this like level one, two, three progression. How long is it supposed to take for them to go through? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And it, and it depends, Michael. Um, it really depends. I would say that uh, the, the person that became a, a lead advisor now, like the recently about a year or so ago, uh, Colin, I think it took him about you know four to five years to get through it. I, I think part of the reason that it took a while is we were still building it while he was living it. So it wasn't quite as organized uh, during that period of time. Fair My, enough. Thanks for rolling with us, Colin. Yeah, yeah exactly. He's, he's, a, he's a great guy. Um, but he, he did. He, and he, the, good, the good news is, is he, you know, he's become a, uh, you know, Gen 3 leader too. He's really, he's really helping like, what, what should we be doing on this? And I, that's how we built our internship program with an intern. So um, the, the intern that left built the intern program for the next person. So it's been a pretty effective way to do things. But effectively, my goal would be to try to get people through this thing um, in less than that time moving forward. Uh, if I could, because I believe that if they get enough, if they if they want it enough, and they can get credentialed because that is part of this plan as well. Is they they should be getting credentials. You know, they should be getting they should have they need to have their CFP in that in that associate advisor level three. They need to have it by then. So that might delay them if for some reason they can't get it. Ideally, they have it before then, but that would be that that is the requirement by that time. So I think it's it's pretty doable in terms of like maybe four years moving forward, and someone that comes in with maybe some level of experience. Could probably move through it faster than that. And right now, remember, like I said, 20 in 2019, 2020, that's only been a few years. So we have, you know, we have a few, I have right now uh, an associate level three that we're starting to consider as a lead advisor. We're really starting to check the boxes to make sure that she is ready to move up um, because we have clients that we can, we can give to her um, a, a fair amount of them actually. So we're looking at that right now in terms of, okay, what needs to be done here? Um, does she a perfect fit for that role? The number of clients, and, and we tend to make it. We tend to make it a fairly, you know, test it with a few, and then tend to move a number of clients. Which remember, she's already by the time you're associate advisor level three, you're doing the, you're presenting the plan in the meeting. So I'm presuming now this is all like written out in some standard like career path document, so that everybody gets to like follow what they're doing and how they progress. Exactly. So is, is that something you'd be willing to share for advisors who are listening and just want to see like a more concrete example of, of what this looks like? I'm sure much of it is specific to your your firm and contact. So I feel like we're all we're all looking for more examples of how this works. Yeah, I, I'd be I'd be very happy to do that, um, as well as, as show you how we how the performance reviews look as as well. So, so it's a way to sort of, you know, you can, I'll put the two side by side. Okay. Awesome. I, so for folks who are listening, this is episode 362. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 362, uh, we'll, we'll have links in the show notes for uh, for Jeff's, uh, I guess, like the, the career tracks and the performance reviews that they do with it, which I guess is just like the individual questions, Jeff, that you would be asking that they then get scored on to get their one to five scores to get their their bonus structure. Yes. And that we... Okay. 
Yeah, yeah. So you can that way you can relate and see how it all fits together. And, and on there, you'll see also the we also have the compensation ranges on there as well. So then, how does this work for lead advisors? So, unfortunately, Michael, I don't have everything figured out, but we have a lot <laughs> figured out. Um, so currently, we hadn't have to, we didn't we didn't used to have to worry about the lead advisors because all the lead advisors were partners at the firm collecting profits of the firm. So. You know, and, and that's you know typical guarantee plus yeah. profit distribution. We didn't have to worry about it. Well, well then then we had we had to fix that. So so Colin, who was was so patient with us, um, you know he he uh, he became a lead advisor, and, and we had to come up with a compensation plan in terms of Be- how, because he was your first non partner lead advisor that got introduced. Yes. Um, so I spent a lot of time researching this and trying to figure out the best way to do it. And so this may not be the best way. But this is the way that we've chosen for now, is that currently Colin is has a salary. Remember, remember they were making a salary all the way up. Well, his salary is, you know, the lead advisor's salary grows with your credentials. It stops growing as much in terms of leaps and percentages, but it does, there is a salary component there. And as Colin gets another, you know, his CPWA, for example, then his, his salary would go up. Then, so you you reward like new designations and credentials pretty directly in your environment. That's a that's a comp adjustment. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, secondly, is that um, Colin then is going to get fifteen percent of the revenue that he manages, in addition okay. to the base. And the way it should work at the end, remember Colin, you know, and he gets a bonus if he's bringing in additional business. But most of the right. business was 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 given to him. Well, he's done a great job of bringing in a new business, and he gets the bonus for that. So he gets fifteen percent of the revenue that he manages. And at the end of the day, what we're trying to target here is for you know for that total percentage to be anywhere between you know call it thirty to forty percent of of the fees that they're managing. That's that's the target. Um, we have, he, he is not, he is, we haven't got to that, you know, to the big enough number in terms of right. management. And we've, we've, we've talked about perhaps just moving to a flat percentage and removing the salary at some point. But I do like the fact of the, that you have, you know, the stability there. And part of it's just the, you're doing the job for the firm and you're getting paid for that. And then you're also getting paid for the amount of work that you're doing for the clients and I like I like the combination of that along with the net new money bonus, and you're getting paid to bring new business to the firm. Interesting, interesting, and um, and so does that mean? Is that now what all the advisors are tied to? Like, did you have to go back to other lead advisors who were partners and say we're we're doing comps similarly, or is this a like new advisors going forward? This is the structure, but existing advisors are doing whatever they've done historically. Exactly. I mean, for the most part, the existing advisors are giving away clients without a penalty to it uh, to, to cre- increase capacity for that. I mean, we, we just, we, like I said, we hit that capacity wall. Everyone's pretty full. I have, you know, I've lead advisors sending me emails on the weekends. That's not ideal. So the right. idea is, is, is there's plenty of clients that we already have inside the firm to, without even growing, which is obviously that would be a hit to profitability to continue to take, you know, a piece of this and pay it out. So we, we want to keep growing, but there's a, there's enough inside the firm that we, that we to go around and create the careers for a lot of these associates that are working with us today. And you, and you don't have levels for lead advisor at this point, the way that you've, you have for associate. We, we've built it out, but we only have one, 
I would say that okay. it, just as, as our as our friend Colin is is doing, he is also the guinea pig on this one as well. So uh-huh. I, I think uh, thank you, Colin. More yes, shout-outs for Colin. Yeah, thank you, Colin. So I think yeah, but I think that what we're planning to build and what I have with attorneys right now is a, is an LTIP plan that's being reviewed to you know how you as you move into a higher level of lead advisor, can you participate in the equity ownership and what does that look like? I would love to say that I have that all figured out today, Michael, but okay. I don't. But that is on the docket as he continues to grow. So the idea is eventually he's got he and and others were just picking on yeah. Colin because he's the guinea pig, but mm-hmm. the the lead advisors would have some kind of path to partnership equity or at least ec- equity like participation uh, as they as they grow to certain levels in the future. Exactly, and and that would be tied not as much to the revenue you manage. That's more about becoming a leader of the firm and, and being involved in those discussions. Like I mentioned earlier, we have I have. My, if you go to my website, besides Robert, who came through the merger that we did uh, back in 2020, it's a very young group of people that are the advisory team. So I have, an, I have my next gen of leaders there. And what I'm trying to get is now I'm trying to get gen three, bringing up from the ground up to, with leadership and everything around. That. So now help us understand for the firm, like you've got a, a sizable uh, business at, at $1.5 billion <laughs> of, of assets and 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 close to 9 million of revenue and, and, and 21 team members. But you had said earlier, you're affiliated back to Stratos, Wealth Partners, so one of the, the advisor platforms that are out there. So what do you do versus what Stratos does? Why are you with Stratos instead of on your own? I don't mean that as a negative to Stratos, just like, how does this work between what you do at a firm your size and what it means to be plugged into a platform like Stratos? Yeah, it, it, it might make sense, Michael, for me to take a step back and just give you a brief glimpse of the of a quick history of kind of where I came from. Sure, please. So I started off in, I mentioned I, I started off at an independent firm a long time ago. So back in 1996, I was selling financial plans, all roads led to insurance there, um, you know, finished my first year and made half as much money as I made waiting tables the year before because it was independent. And I was just, you know, I have a master's in finance but it was all insurance sales. And that wasn't something I was good at, but I liked the financial planning. So a friend of mine at the time said, Hey, why don't you come over? You would restart your training program, but do it at Prudential Securities. And why don't you quote unquote with air quotes, sell your financial plans instead of stocks in 1997. So that's what we, that's what I did. So I was at Prudential, Prudential became Wachovia, Wachovia became Wells Fargo. Um, You know, don't need to go down that path, but I was at the wirehouse for a long time. And in 2000, by, by 2015, I was ready to start my own thing. And that's when we left. And prior to that, in the financial crisis, I had actually looked at um, going completely independent um, or in the financial crisis because things were falling apart. I was going to leave. And I looked at everything that you needed to do to go independent, you know, in terms of getting a lease and all of the things that that are required. And it was just so overwhelming that I was just, I I was frozen. There was no way I was going to do it. Well, I, I got introduced to, one of the founders of Stratos. And what Stratos does is they help people, they, they call it, it's called supported independence. What they do is they help you more or less either break away from, from a wirehouse or some other type of, of firm. And, and it, what they will do is they will take a small override. And for that override, they're going to do things like compliance, supervision, technology, billing, HR, help you negotiate leases, etc. So at the size where we were, that margin was pretty thin. It wasn't too much. And in terms of Commitments for them, 
at that time we moved to LPL because we had brokerage assets leaving, you know, leaving the wirehouse. We, we, we weren't, we were right. mostly advisory, but there was some brokerage stuff there. So we, we landed LPL first. And um, so that's how I joined Stratos. And, and they, and every year I ran the math of what it would take for me to get my own CCO, my own com- chief compliance officer, figure out, you know, do the billing, pay the up, up cost for Orion. And I figured out in my, you know, based on what we were paying, my quick math was they're making about a 20% margin, at least on my business. That was my math. And to me, that seemed fair to not have to worry about it for all the cybersecurity and everything out there. So I stuck with them and they're fantastic people. Uh, so meaning you you calculated like, what would it take for me to just hire and do all these things, the CCO, the Orion licenses, all the rest. Then you looked at the math of what you're paying Stratos and the answer was, okay, Stratos is charging me about 20% more than what I could probably spend by doing this all piece by piece. So like that, that that's their profit margin. Uh, but at the end of the day, paying 20% of those costs to have someone do it and manage it and be responsible for it, and <laughs> deal with all the consequences with it, like, okay, that's a reasonable markup so that I don't have to deal with all of this myself. Like, that was the mindset. That was the mindset. And, I, you know, I reviewed it for a number of years. And because, you know, as we grew, we became one of the larger firms that they that they had. So if... I felt like I had a seat at the table in terms of the direction of, of Stratos, not really who they're recruiting or what they're doing, but effectively like, Hey, we're interested in this type of technology or we want this type of alternative investment or whatever it might be. And they listened. And that made a big difference coming from where I was before. So in, in fact, one, one such idea is in 2019, my, our brokerage business got, was so small, but we, you know, as you may know, we were still reporting to FINRA for this tiny little piece. We came up with a plan where I sold my brokerage business to Stratos they service it, and um, so they purchased it from me. And but the account numbers didn't change; it was still on the Orion report, right? So we could we could help them, you know, on the plant financial planning side of their annuities and their five twenty nines. What we had left there, we still continue to advise them. We just couldn't advise them on the individual transactions. It was a very clean way to do that. And then in twenty twenty, my coach Ray Sclafani. It challenged me in one of the one of the meetings here uh, around a question that I had, which I had to grade myself on my exit strategy and the value of my business. I said, on a scale of one to five, how important is it? One being not important, and on a scale of one to five, you know, how are you doing on it? So I marked one, I'm not doing very well on it. And number on the other side, it's a one, it's not important to me. I'm, you know, calling it, you know, I'm 49 years old at the time. And I got a browbeating in our class saying, I can't believe this, Jeff. You help business owners and people, and this is you should do this. So I spent of the better part of half of that year, making the mental shift from income to enterprise value. And like, wow, this is really worth something. Oh my gosh, if something happens to me, my young next-gen talent is never going to be able to buy this. There's, there's no way. So, so at that point in time, I negotiated uh, something with Stratos where they, they took a minority stake in my firm. And you know, silent partner, minority stake, which gave me complete succession planning, which was great. Uh, allowed me to take a little chips off the table, which also feels good. And I also had the expertise now of Stratos's executive team, their attorneys for M&A and such at my, at my table. And later, you know, not, not 12 months later, we did our first M&A transaction with another Stratos advisor and brought those assets in with us. So we rebranded in 21 from Brown Wealth Management to BWM Financial, just to get my name off the door per my partner, my new partner. And... <clears throat> So probably most interesting here is that I remember we've been working on this custodial referral program for four years and the plan was BWM financial powered by Stratos is the offering. Well, I'm in San Diego. So how good of a job can I do servicing the country? That's going to require a lot. 
And, you know, I just was daunting around thinking about it. And so we said, I, I, I talked to Jeff Concepcion and, uh, and Lou Camacho over at Stratos and, you know, saying, hey, I have a business plan here. I have an idea. So what we did, what I did is I, I flew out to Cleveland and I said, hey, um, you know, Stratos is a bunch of brown wealth management, Kitsis wealth management. And I, I like, I love it. I heard it on this podcast where Joe Duran said, hey, it's a bunch of pirates out there with these individual flags. Yeah. Um, you know, what I said, what we need to do, we need to create the Navy inside of Stratos using Joe Duran's also what he says about what he said about United Capital. I said, we can do that here. And we sat down and built out a business plan to create what is now Stratos Private Wealth, which is the Navy inside of Stratos. So what we're going to be, what we're in the process of building is the intake plan for that, for that custodial referral program where we will have, we're going to be all these, some of these other marketing things will be built and powered by Stratos private wealth and, and run. And some of the expense will be borne by the, by the mothership on the top. Right. Um, also adding things like tax advice, a CPA, estate planning partnerships, for example, and succession planning and a financial incentive to these folks as well. Should Stratos ever have an event. So we've been talking to the other quote unquote pirates at Stratos about joining forces in major cities to create this unified platform where they can have ownership in their, in their, so they don't have to sell to like one of these other large RAs that are aggregating everybody and doing this today, where you can still own a large piece of your firm, still benefit from the scale of a multi-billion dollar operation and still keep the culture of your local office in place. So that's, you know, kind of answering a long question or with a, answering a question with a very long answer. That's how I've gotten to Stratos Private Wealth, where we, where we have today. Interesting. All right, so I, so I've got a couple of questions of, of how this played out in the and the turning points along the way. So so take me back once more to uh, th- this piece where you sold the brokerage portion of the business. So I'm presuming this is like a, a lot of us that came from the the broker dealer world into the advisory side. Your brokerage based business is well, initially it's 100% of your revenue, but like then it's 80, then it's 60, then it's 40, then it's 30, then it's 20 because you keep growing these advisory assets and you're doing less than transactional sales. And then it's down like sub 20%, sub 10%. And as long as it's anything but zero, you are still subject to FINRA. So at yes, some point it gets small correct. enough that it it gets appealing to say like, maybe, maybe we just need to, to, to stop this. And I know some advisors that just it gets small enough. They say like, I'm, I'm just walking away from it. It's not, it's not big enough to be worth keeping for for having Finra in my life. I'm I'm struck like you didn't just walk away from it. You you structured a transaction to to sell it to a particularly friendly party that you had an affiliation to. So can I ask like how, how does that deal get structured? Like how do you value that? How do you set terms to a transaction like that? Yeah, number one. So this is um this will kind of break it through. Like I look at this thing through like a funnel. We're on the top okay. of the funnel, you have the clients. In the middle of the funnel, you have your staff. And at the bottom of the funnel is the, the profits of the firm, the, the partners. Okay. And so if you look at everything through that lens, I think you can make really good decisions. And I think a lot of advisors do that. But I always try to put that every time I have, especially some sort of financial transaction in front of me. And in this particular case, the number one objective on, on, on this was to make sure that the clients are going to be fine, that it doesn't hurt the clients whatsoever. Because by the time we had already done the lifting of what, what made sense to convert to advisory versus not, 
Um, or we held it like we call it below the line. Like if you're holding a large amount of, for example, Qualcomm stock, where it's in an account with us, we're just not going to charge a fee on it. Right. But we can charge you as it, it can't, it, it doesn't have to be a brokerage thing with FINRA. So right. we, we got to the level at which we had done all of that. And we were really left with, it came down to legacy annuities that we had from what, you know, people transferred stuff in over the years. We, we had some very limited cases where that made sense, but there were large transactions and a lot of 529 plans. Uh, once again, legacy from, from the, from the yeah. uh, wire. So, so there was trails on a lot of that. And where, you know, what we did is we, we structured it in a way where, where Stratos would pay us um, over a long period of time, some, some turn of that, of the revenue that they were going to keep. Uh, I forget exactly what it was. It wasn't extremely profitable for, it wasn't like I made all that we made this money because it's being paid out over multiple years. It's more or less so that they can cash flow it over time. So they're, they're making money on the purchase because of the trails and they get to adjust it as the trails adjust. What we get to have is same account number, complete visibility into it, a friendly party to deal with the clients and we get to drop FINRA. So we made a little money on it and we continued it like a little bit of a trail, if you will, if you want to call it that. Um, but but it, wasn't, it wasn't consequential. The main objective was just to get it off the books, but we made a win-win out of the financial piece of it. And so... Because I'm cognizant, like literally, once you drop your FINRA licenses, you can't like you can't take a direct uh, rev share participation because that's the whole point of the license that you don't have anymore. So I'm I'm presuming that it's some kind of structure where you 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 set a value for what it's going to be overall, and then they're they're technically just like paying off a note to yeah. you for the for the value of the transaction, and maybe the note can have some adjustments if revenue doesn't stick around, which you you're, you're 100%. We agreed to the payments up front. And if the revenue drops to a certain level, you know, they recast the note. So it's just, it's not like, oh, you're getting paid a percentage of it. If it drops, then if there's it's like a, a view, like a clawback, the same way we would look at an M&A transaction. So right. if you don't, if you don't keep the assets, we get to claw back some of that price over time. It's the same type of thing. And how did you price it? Just as like a multiple of the revenue of the trails, that was the sort yes. of upfront number, and then we amortize it over a long period of time? Yeah, something like that. If I, and I forget, I'd have to look at the note, but it wasn't, let's just say between one and two times, maybe it was yeah, one and a half times. It, it was not meaningful whatsoever. Okay. Okay. And then, so then now take me forward to the second transaction where you're structuring a minority stake in the business from Stratos. So how did, now that that's the main thing, that's not the, <laughs> that's not the part you're moving away from, that's the part you're going into. So how did that transaction in deal work? Yeah, sure. So I got a certain amount of money paid, you know, once again, kind of most, mostly upfront in that arrangement. It was a 25% stake where they had minority protections attached to it. At a fair valuation at the time, much lower valuation than it is today. It's like selling your stock on the way up, but I got to sell some recently. Oh, so because, was- <laughs> because you did this in 2019 and it's really just been the past like 24 months that multiples kind of got bigger. Yes, yes. So it was a pretty fair, a pretty clean, easy transaction. I was already comfortable with them. They, they really, and to be honest, like they, they've been very, very good partners. And I think I mentioned like they took a majority stake in order to us to do Stratos Private Wealth. So that was one of their requirements for me to live my vision here. Um, but the the minority stake, it was they were more or less left us to do our stuff. We were growing, we were doing well, and that set the stage for the the M and A because the other gentleman was at Stratos, and that gave us a little bit of credibility that we had. Oh, Stratos is investing in, in them. We had been talking for years about perhaps combining forces, and so that actually teed us up 
to do that second transaction within 12 months with another firm. So help me understand more why the minority stake at the time. I mean, I, I get it if just you literally want to take some chips off the table and so you sell a portion of the business to take chips off the table. You had framed this around succession planning as well. And like, I get it once once they have a piece of the firm, they can potentially buy more of it if you if you need to exit. But I mean, I'm presuming at the end of the day, if you got you know, if you hadn't done that deal and you got hit by the proverbial or literal bus and someone called them and said, uh, Jeff got hit by a bus, the next gen advisors can't take this over. Can you guys buy this thing out? That they would do the deal. Like they're not gonna say, nah, spin off, go ahead, leave, watch all the assets dissipate and walk away. If they're willing to buy you now, I'm presuming they would have been willing to buy in any case to solve your succession needs whenever you got to the point of needing them. So I guess I'm I'm just wondering like why why take the action where you did as opposed to just saying like guys sign a buy sell with me that you buy me out if I get hit by a bus. Yeah, I think there's two things. One is I, I like to tell people like every advisor is going to have an exit. It's either going to be planned or not. Yeah. So if if as, you as with every business owner. Yep. Yeah. So so if you plan it, you set your own terms. And in this case, I was able to set the terms. My, my main goal is, I, I, I mean, to be honest, Michael, I wanted to protect my family should something happen to me. We have a great lifestyle, a great life. It wasn't always about like I needed to, to have more and more money at the time. It's like, hey, if something happens to me, I want to make sure that the business continues in a certain manner. And I want to make sure that my family is set. And I was able to do that at that time. And, and quite honestly, it's nice having people on your, I mean, I could have asked them to be on my board and help me out. But when they have, a, when they have, when they have skin in the game, it's a, it's a different outcome. And, 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 and quite honestly, like it, that facilitated the next transaction, which, you know, the way the payout structure works at Stratos, they might not have been too fond of because when we put the larger force together, the, they, the, this new person comes in at my payout level, which was much, much better. So it ate into their pocketbook, but now they're a part owner in that transaction. So they win on that one. So I think it all worked out. And also we really tell, or at least we do, we tell our clients look, you should be diversifying over time. And that was one way for me to, to begin to do that. And now take us forward to the, the next stage of the transactions here, which was, I think you said, like selling a majority stake for building this private wealth direction. Yeah, so when, we, when I talked to him about this, you know, it was more, it was about, hey, this is a great idea, but we, we don't want you to potentially, you know, to sell to somebody else, which in my, if, if I'm building it under their name and we're going to be doing all these things, because I had been approached by people that were saying, Hey, we can, we'll buy, you know, you know, you know, how, you know, sure, you're, you're sizable enough. Your name shows up on lists and PE firms start calling. Yes. Yeah. So and they, they're keenly aware of that. And, and now after doing the minority stake in, in us, we were their second transaction. They've fast forward a few years, they've done a bunch of them. So they're, they're investing in a lot of firms now and they get it. They're in that space too. So they said, hey, we'll do this. We'll help you grow. We'll pay for resources. We'll compensate you in some other ways if you grow, but we want to take a minority stake in the firm. I negotiated a pretty nice deal on that one in terms of the multiple and everything. <laughs> so, and I've heard you say this before, how do you, but if you kept, you're making more, like you can't invest that money and make the same amount of money. Um, but what I have done is I've completely secured myself financially mm-hmm. and I get to do like I get to leapfrog in the number of years to where right. 
I want to be. And I think that's, to me, that's more important than worrying about, you know, how much money I keep in the business at this point in time. And we negotiated the, you know, there's also, if, if Stratos has an event down the road, because, and this is the same thing for other firms that join us, is that there is a big multiple lift on a percentage of the equity if they have an event. So you're getting a much outsized multiple on your business should that occur. And that's a very big financial incentive. Interesting. But from their end, it was, hey, if you're going to build this thing that starts aggregating and banding together firms under our umbrella, just we have to own a majority stake of it because otherwise, if you own a majority stake, you could build it and sell it to an external party. And yes, like we monetize our minority stake, but like you could sell out a huge portion of our business from under us and, and just disrupt the the platform business from their end. So at majority stake for them, they at least get to control the terms and timing and dynamics of whether that sale ever happens. So they can make the decision on their end, but they don't have to worry that they're going to be in, in like a compelled dragged along sale scenario of the bulk of their firms that they helped you roll up and sell. That's completely true, Michael. And to be honest, before I presented them with this business plan, as I mentioned, I, I've been approached by other firms, you know, large, large RAAs, and each one of them, the requirement for becoming part of that platform and getting all of the bells and whistles, and once again, kind of thinking through the, the funnel, uh, is this good for the clients? Yes, I want my clients to have tax advice. I want my clients to have more differentiated investments. I want my clients to have the benefit of having access to services we can't pay for today. And then I want my, my, I also want the growth associated with the custodial referral program, which gives my, my team members a lot more upward mobility, a lot more career path growth. So it helps. And then yes, at the bottom, you know, Jeff as a seller, it gets money, but he might be selling early, but nonetheless, everyone else becomes a winner out of that one. I believe. Well, and there, there comes a point, uh, you know, there comes a point in, in growing business when you get to a certain level of of enterprise value that you know you can do a partial stake. It just literally solves like all the all, all the money problems you might have had, right? Just the we can retire and the kids can go to college and we can live the lifestyle we want. And there's probably even something left for the kids at the end to to uh, to help the kids and the grandkids and if I can do a partial deal that solves that, then basically everything I do thereafter is the proverbial house money. So like, let's go for it. Yeah. It's, it's the extra dollars I didn't need. So yeah. And if and if I was going to try to do all this on my own without the scale, it would crush our profitability to do right. all of that. So that that's, that's kind of painful. And, and, and if I was, and so the other route is to, is to join someone that has it and they're going to make you sell everything. Right. So this is, this was this, and this, this model didn't, as far as I know, doesn't really exist. So we, we felt it was a little bit unique in terms of like potentially offering it out to other folks. And it's so far we've been receiving, been received pretty well. So I've got to ask, like, what's it like to become a minority owner and employee in the business you made? Yeah. So it's actually two things, Michael, not only am I a minority owner, I also report to somebody at Stratos as well. So oh, fantastic. So you have yeah, a boss too. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, you know, if it was easy, right, it wouldn't be worth doing. I, I think that there's, you know, it, it's been the good thing about the folks at Stratos is, is they, we have, they have the best line. We're always going to, we're going to land in a good place. And, and I think that that is always, if there's some miscommunication or an issue, that team there is among the, the best of the best people that I've ever worked with. 
with. So I really enjoy working with them. Yes, there's some disagreements or some, or maybe like, hey, I want to go north and you want to go east. Let's hash that out a little bit. But it's been really, really fun. And, and the other thing that's been really unique is my job has completely changed. And I'm out there flying around, talking to different offices. I'm understanding how PLs work far better than I did before. I'm understanding the intricacies of building out an internal investment platform. I mean, it's it's a lot of things that are just exciting to me. And then that's, you know, where I'm in life, I think that's more important than the money these days. So as you reflect on this journey, what surprised you the most about the the path of building your own advisory firm? I, I think what surprised me the most is I've it continues to surprise me is just how many different ways there are to build a successful firm and uh-huh. that there is no manual of how to do it. It's the craziest thing. Um, so it's, it's, there's so many different ideas, so many, you can get, I mean, it's, it's crazy. The amount of, you go to a conference and you hear a few things or even listening to your podcast and you get these ideas. There are so many different ideas and great things to do. There's just, there's not enough time to do them. So I think it's, that's, what's made it incredibly fun. And for a person that kind of, that fell into this industry, I went to school to be an investment banker and I ended up being in this business. It's one of the best moves I've ever made. It's, it's like I work, it's my hobby when I go to work every day and it makes it com- completely enjoyable. So just the sheer different ways you can do it. And even when someone says, oh yeah, you can't, that's, you can't do it that way. You know what? Someone will pop up on your podcast or I'll meet them at a conference and they're doing it that way and they're, and they're crushing it, right? So it's amazing to me and it's very exciting. So what was the low point for you on this journey? Yeah, there was probably a few of them. But besides the average financial crisis going down with the ship at Wachovia and that, that whole thing, I think that might have been the low point. But one that eclipsed that was, and it was one thing that helped me uh, that I learned. And one of the reasons I actually left the wirehouse was at the, I used to have a junior partner that we came to an arrangement where he would call, he would set the appointments, I would do the appointments, close the business, et cetera, right? It was that, that, that was a model back then. And, and this person got a certain percentage and that percentage increased over time, but, but their job didn't change. So eventually we were very successful at that and we had a lot of clients, but now I'm managing all the clients and he is getting a percentage of the business. And when we started kind of talking about, well, Hey, you need to start doing these various things. He more or less, because it's a wirehouse and we have a split on the, on the rep code. He said, you know what? I don't want to do that anymore. I'm going to take my percentage and leave. And it was just, these were like all my clients, you know, 30% of my clients. And it was very easy. It was just, it was written in the contract and I never thought it would happen. And boy, did I learn a lot about partnerships at that point in time. And that is one of the reasons that we left the wirehouse so that I could provide next gen equity, but in a way that was structured around it with agreements and such. So because he got paid the sourcing fee, he also essentially had a like permanent right to get back. 30% 30% of the revenue of the client base that had been developed that way. Yep. That's how it works at the, uh, at least that's how it did back then. If you have a joint rep code and one person wants to split, whatever the percentage is, that person gets to keep in perpetuity, unless you come to some other arrangement, but that's what it was back then. Okay. And I guess presumably if you can't decide how to carve up the 30% of clients and 70% of the clients, branch managers get pulled in to help yes. settle this. That's exactly what was going to happen if we didn't do it ourselves. We're cordial friends today. But I never, it just caught me out of the blue and, and never suspected anything like that could happen. How do you think about partnership differently now? Now, you know, when we left, we, there's operating agreements. There are things like that about you are the clients of the firm. It's not like you can take the client. If you leave, you can't take the clients 
at least the partners cannot take the clients. So there's, there's without like, you know, retribution and things like that. So all written into the document, which was ironclad uh, when we, when we designed it. So I wouldn't think that would ever happen again, but now we have legal documents and we did not back then. It was just a split number. Okay. And particularly for partners, because, you know, it's, it's one thing to try to do this with employment agreements, but the point that equity ownership changes hands, there's a lot more you can do in a, uh, in a partnership agreement than what you can do with an employment agreement in, yeah. in terms of being restrictive. Yeah, at least yeah, at least back then when that was I mean that was a long time ago. That was probably 2005, 2006, somewhere in there. So it was a long time ago, but it was an expensive lesson to some degree. I mean, and technically he was already I kept the same amount of revenue that I had before, right? That actually I got some clients that came that left with he took, but I they came back to work with me. So I actually ended up with a a higher net income from the transaction, but it was more, it wasn't the low point in terms of financially. It was the low point in terms of understanding like, wow, I really made a mistake that I can't come back from. So what else do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you from 20 plus years ago? I think for me, you know, telling myself, I would think big. I would think much bigger because my goal when I was an aspiring advisor of, you know, one person and a half a half a sales assistant is what we called them back in the day. If I could just get to a hundred million, right, under management and do my one million in production, I will be the I will be forever happy. I will have arrived. And now my goal is to be in the top ten RAs in the nation. So it's a far different goal. If I had started thinking bigger back then, I think I'd be further along today. I mean, just listening to people that I hear on your podcast that, that have done this. And in a shorter time, I'm happy with what, what, what I've done. But I think it, it, if I would have just thought a little bit bigger, I could have gone a little bit farther. And I would have probably thought about things differently. There's a that great book, 10X versus 2X or something like that by Benjamin yeah. Hardy. Like that yep. type of thinking. It's that type of thinking I wish I, I had back then. So any other advice you'd give younger, newer advisors who are... are just get, getting started in the profession today? So San Diego State's a, a school that's that's my alma mater and near where we're at. And I've had the, the luxury of speaking to students there in this field. And, and, and this is the advice that I give to them. I say, typically, <clears throat> there are two types of, of advisors out there. It's probably more than two types. But, but generally speaking, there's going to be two types. There's going to be the type of advisor that is wants to build what I built or some version of that. Right, that wants to build their own firm. That wants to, that in, in and as you and know, and as from talking to the folks, all you do that is not an easy journey in terms of building your own firm. And, and the success rate is actually not great. Um, you know, starting out trying to build a book of clients when you don't know any, anybody at, at a young age, the failure rate, at least when I was younger, was I mean, ninety percent failure. So, but if you're ready for that, it's a great reward for you. And to try to find that out early, the other path is the path that we've created for folks. Hey, you want to make a very, very good living helping people do help them change people's lives. You can do it on the other side too. It's a much stabler way to go. It's a different type of, 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 it's a, in my opinion, a different start to the career and the different, different decisions you're going to make along the way. And the sooner that you can figure that out, I think the more successful you're going to be and you're going to save yourself a lot of time. And the second thing I would say is that don't underestimate the power of multiple years. Some people get frustrated when they're younger about it's not happening quick enough. Gosh, it's like those first, I remember those first three years were brutal for me. And, and you know, it was, it was different when you're building it on your own because it's, it's scary at that point in time. 
But look where I am today. Look at where a lot of people are. Pick on Colin. Look at where Colin is today. Um, you know, he's gone pretty far in the amount of time that he's been working. And I think so to have your eye on the long game and not focus so much about like how am how much am I making today? What am I doing today? So have your eye on the prize. And I think if you have that long-term vision, it's going to make all the difference in the world. So as we wrap up, this is a a podcast about success. And just one of the themes that comes up is that that word success means very different things to different people. And so you've had this incredible path of growth and and north of a billion dollars now. And and so the business is in a wonderfully successful place. How do you define success for yourself at this point? The key part of that is the last part, Michael, you said at this point, um, if you were to ask me this, even as far recently as like 2015 or right around there, I would have defined success as it would have something to do with the business. That's I live and breathe. I still live and breathe the business but I lived and breathed it. And my identity was tied to that. And I think as I've sold a piece of the business along the way a few times, I've changed that perspective. It's not what I'm all about. I love doing it still, but I've really, instead of listening to just financial advisor podcasts and business books and all of that, I've really branched out into the health and wellness and science and, and a bunch of other things. So I've really tried to diversify. And I heard it, this was, this is what, and I heard this quote, and I'm going to steal this. It came from Ed Milet and I'm going to, give it a different version. But he came up with this. And when I heard it, I said, that is, that's what I want. He said that success is being introduced to the person that you could have become at the end of your life and knowing that person very well, instead of looking at that person and being completely different than that person. So business would be part of it, but also relationships, health, the things you experienced in life, all of that, trying to make the most of every single day, because at this age, I'm having more people pass away, unfortunately, than going to weddings like I was, you know, a number of years ago. So I think I'm really trying to keep that perspective in things. And I try to use that as my guiding compass these days. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, thank you so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.